Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 329er. So before you can ever really think about winning external customers, you have to, as a leader, win internal customers. And who are my internal customers? The people that I just mentioned. And who are those people's internal customers? The servers, the hosts and hostesses, the ones that are the absolute closest. That, in my opinion, is the essence of leadership. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Are you opening a restaurant and stressing out with where to start? Or perhaps you've already opened your restaurant and you're finding yourself completely overwhelmed with the day-to-day task that only you know how to do. If you feel this way, I've got good news. You don't have to do it alone, nor should you regain control of your business and your life with restaurantowner.com. And if you go to restaurantowner.com slash unstoppable, you will get a 10-day pass for only $1. Get on it. Hiring a consultant to train your staff and to improve your restaurant can be expensive. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could just get advice from world champion baristas and leading restaurant consultants without spending thousands of dollars? Tipsy believes you should have the chance to learn new skills whenever you need to, which is why they have hundreds of hospitality courses available for only $9 a month. To give you a little something extra, as a restaurant unstoppable listener, you can also get 50% off your first month. All you gotta do is Click the tipsy banner in the show notes. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Bill Post. Bill, are you feeling unstoppable today, my man? Well, with excitement, Eric, I always feel unstoppable. Yes, yes. I do. Awesome. And a special thanks to Carrie uh, Luxem for this connection. Uh, awesome. I love it when we just pass on each other's networks and share this information with each other. And I wouldn't be able to get this interview lined up without Carrie. So thank you, Carrie with over approximately 40 years of experience in hospitality. Bill post got his humble start at Levy restaurants back in 1978 today in multiple restaurant businesses. Later, Bill is the founder and CEO of WJP Restaurant Group, a multi-dimensional restaurant company with locations scattered around the country and the founder of WJ Post Restaurant Advisors, offering consultancy to forward-thinking owners and entrepreneurs of small to medium-sized restaurants. Clearly, we're just scraping the surface, giving the listeners a taste of who you are and what you've accomplished. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. Take it away, Bill. Well, I think, uh, you know, my mantra is something that I've followed throughout most of my career. Real simple, winning customers one at a time. And uh, we'll get into the the depth of all of that and what really uh, customers mean, not just external, but internal customers as we go through. Awesome. I love it. And uh, we actually got the 
the luxury to almost spend an hour together a few days back to really get to know, to get to know each other. And man, you have such a broad experience with over 40 years in the industry. Uh, I can't wait to, to dive into this experience. But why don't you just give us a aerial view, just like hit the milestones in your career up to this point, and then we'll start to kind of pull back the layers after that. Sure. Thanks, Eric. So, you know, I started in the business, as you mentioned, back in uh, 1978. Started uh, as uh, one of the original man- management members at, uh, at that time, a very fledgling uh, restaurant company, Levy Restaurants in Chicago. Was at that company for a 20-year period of time. Ran it for much of that, uh, that tenure as president and chief operating officer. Levy has become a- an incredible force in the restaurant and hospitality business um, in, on an international scale. They uh, will rank in the top 10 of, uh, of all food service companies in terms of dollar volume at the end of this year. Wow. So over their 40-year term, they're, they're a multi-billion dollar food service enterprise. I left Levy um, after 20 years, as I mentioned, went to New York and ran Restaurant Associates, which was, uh, which was and is the oldest restaurant company in America, headquartered in New York City, um, with much of its operations uh, on the restaurant side in Manhattan, but up and down the eastern seaboard as well, and was there for a half dozen years and migrated back home, which is in the Chicago area, back in uh, 2004, 2005, and decided at that point in time I wanted to put uh, all of the things that I had learned in the business to my own use and uh, was a founder of my own concept, um, recruiting a lot of the investors for a concept called Roti Mediterranean Grill, um, a quick casual uh, Mediterranean concept that was the first actually in that Mediterranean space on the fast casual side. And today numbers close to 30 units, primarily in Chicago, Washington, D.C., and New York City, but about to emerge into other, uh, other locations around the country. Um, I have left that company uh, from the operating side, and now, as you mentioned earlier, have uh, have my own two companies, one on the consulting side of things and the other on actual restaurant operations, multidimensional, as you mentioned, Eric, um, with Mexican sandwich and restaurant bar concepts located both in Huntsville, Alabama, and also in suburban Washington, D.C. and Maryland. So now you can understand after listening about to like everything you've done, Bill, uh, you can see why I just wanted to get Ariel real quick. And then now we'll just zoom into these different parts of your life because I just I'm really interested first with just, uh, you know, understanding how you went from an entry level position at Levy to being a part of management uh, and what we can take from your experience climbing that that ladder, uh, that, a corporate ladder and what, how we can, you know, emulate the way you held yourself. So what were the big lessons for you and what do you think you were doing in your career uh, early on at Levy that helped you be successful? Well, I think early on, Eric, you know, uh, Levy uh, was founded as a multidimensional restaurant company, has always been multidimensional in the hospitality business. They're now a very, very large um, concession, sports concession type of organization, but we were founded as a restaurant company. And Early on, um, one of the great things that we did at Levy was we were very entrepreneurial. We were opening businesses relatively quickly during the early 1980s when Reagan took his presidency and everything. And one of the principles that we had as a company 
was to try to be as loyal and allegiant to our uh, to our employees, both hourly as well as management, as we possibly could. And um, you know that sounds very simple um, and an easy principle to follow. But throughout my career, I have found that very few companies have actually held true to that. And being very, very um, loyal to the best employees that you possibly can be, hourly as well as management, gave us an opportunity to really grow our own company from our own base of people, from our own philosophy. A lot of hourly team members became managers. A lot of managers became general managers. A lot of general managers became corporate employees as we built a company. And, um, and the loyalty and the allegiance, in my opinion, during the first 10, 15 years of Levy's existence, now being almost a 40-year-old company, um, was the most important thing, was, was providing the feedback to people and, um, and, and being loyal and allegiant to them. And the providing of feedback is something, by the way, that I feel that a lot of managers, whether they're in the restaurant business, Eric, or not in the restaurant business, have a difficult time in doing. Um, and that is very simply providing feedback in, in, form, in the formality of job performance evaluations. People need to be told what they're doing right. People need to be told what they're doing wrong. And when you challenge people that way, that process leads to a developmental type of discussion at the end of that job performance evaluation and challenges them. And if you're doing this regularly, every six months or 12 months, you're providing the basis for really growing people and people that are trying to achieve the things that you want them to achieve. And if they can achieve that hand in step with what you as the company leaders really want, then you have the basis for really growing something very powerful. And the difference really at the end of the day is all in the people, Eric. The difference is all about people. I love it, Bill. Man, you're giving us gold straight out of the gates. And uh, I was going to ask you, I mean, you said it's all about just that loyalty to the employees. And I was going to ask you, like, how do you display loyalty? But then you got right into it. It's about uh, just that feedback and uh, job performance evaluation. And that seems even that seems very like formal and, and like rigid, but it's at the core of that feedback. I mean, let's go take it a little bit deeper. Like what is at the core of that feedback that makes it being just a responsibility? Managers have to go and give you feedback to really making it transformative for the employee. Like what, what is the difference between really? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is a formal type of thing and it does sound kind of corporate, so to speak. Right. But even for the most basic of restaurateurs that are wanting to grow from one to two, and if they want to grow it with their own philosophy and their own, their own basic um, instincts, those are things that they need to follow and try to give the feedback to their own people. So you're asking people and judging them on their ability to manage others. Are they, uh, are they honest? Are they trustworthy? What is their real teamwork type of ethic? Are they the type of person that... that that has the ability in your mind to really learn and grow into a management individual. What are what is their savviness in business? What is their savviness in making decisions? And those are things that people don't necessarily have when they're an incoming manager. But if they have the right kind of innate instincts and everything, you can manage and mold people in that regard. Yeah. And mold them, mold them your way. So when you're giving these uh, these job performances, are you looking uh, more? on the side of, uh, I guess, the technical execution on the review? I mean, I'm sure that's part of it. 
But there's also it seems to be that deeper level of how to think and how to be a better version of yourself, which is that whole idea of are they trustworthy? Are they honest? And how do you um, how do you coach that into somebody without maybe being too, I don't know, um, personal? Is there a way you can be too personal? Does that make sense? No. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think that, you know, it's, it's too personal. I think you're looking for the basic managerial types of instincts in people, if they can grow into a manager with you, mm. whether they be male or female, if they're growing from an hourly position, be it kitchen or be it a, an hourly server type of thing, have they been punctual? Do they follow all of the policies and the procedures that, that, that you have, have kind of established and as a good manager that you kind of uphold on a shift by shift basis. Are those people following those kinds of things? Do they sell up if they're a server? Are they upselling to the customer and following the kinds of things that, that I have always done as, as a manager? You know, I, I've always uh, rated people. Um, I keep player charts on people. When I was back as a manager, um, just like the standings in, in sports standings or anything like that, you want to know who your best people are what they're achieving in terms of sales per labor hour, what they're achieving in terms of sales per customer that they wait on. And oftentimes when you do those kinds of things, you're diving deep into the, into the actual operation of your business, of your restaurant. And soon you find who the leaders are and they start to separate themselves. And who's in first place? Who's in last place? Those people that are in last place might not necessarily need to be cut from the team, but when you're evaluating those people, you can be honest with them and you can talk to them about what they are doing and what they're not doing. So this gets real tangible. Um, and, um, and if you hold to this, you know, this, this, is, this is something that you go through as a really good manager or an executive. It doesn't matter the position. You're giving the honest feedback to people about their talents, about their aptitudes, about their skill set and what they are achieving and what they are not achieving for you. Mm. A real keeper and somebody that you want to make a real manager of that uh, member um, of that team for a long-term prospect, then when you get to the end of that evaluation and you're setting development objectives, I like to set things in terms of numbers of three. So if you're evaluating somebody for six months or one year, there's three major things that you want them to achieve whether they're a server or an assistant manager, a bar manager, what are the three things? And if you take that then on top of every team member that you have in your employment, all of a sudden you've got, you know, a lot of different objectives that you want people to try to achieve on an individualized basis. If you're a real good manager or you're a real good executive, you are following up on that performance evaluation the next time that you talk to them. And how did they do and how, did, how are they performing in terms of those developments, developmental objectives? Yeah. I mean, just listening to you talk, I'm taking notes and I already almost have half a page full because uh, this, is, this is all so great. Uh, what I'm really hearing from you on, on the management side, it's about giving the employee the respect of giving them that honest feedback. And then on, on their side, um, what you're looking for is the integrity that they are and you're holding them accountable and they're and they're displaying their integrity integrity to kind of deliver on what they agreed upon the the standards that you created that that they agreed upon essentially when you trade them or through the systems and processes procedures that you created so essentially 
you're critiquing them on the standards that you agreed upon when they got hired and you're holding them accountable to those standards uh and whether they deliver on that agreement is a a, a reflection of their integrity and I'm, maybe i'm getting too deep here but the best thing you can do as a manager is just give them the respect by giving them that honest feedback is that i, I guess i don't need to say anymore are you picking up what i'm putting down yeah, that's exactly right. And and see, when I said earlier that people make the difference, right? When you're evaluating everybody, everybody doesn't pass the test. Everybody's not going to be there. Everybody doesn't want to be in the restaurant business maybe for their full career, but you want them to abide by your by your operating principles and 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 what have you. So, when I say that people make the difference, elevate that to the next level. To the person who is giving the evaluations the managers or the general manager of a business, the chief operating officer, the president of a company. When you're evaluating somebody, then all of a sudden the elevation becomes the coach makes the difference. And the coach always makes the difference. Sports analogies, right? There's, there's how many teams are there in the NFL? 30 or 32, I believe. Something like that. <laughs> all draft from the same pool of people every year. Why is it that some teams and some coaches are always at the top of the list when you do that ranking or you do those standings? Why is it that some teams and some executive profiles and whatnot always find themselves at the bottom? It's just, you know, it's, it's the ability of all of those coaches in the leadership positions of a company, of a restaurant. It's, it, it's all really the same. Yeah. And the coach makes the difference yeah we were talking about this last week and uh i love the example you used of the new england patriots not everybody might love that example uh but (laughs) i I love it because i'm up here in new hampshire uh let's use them as an example what do you think it is about this team that has enabled them to come back so many times over and over again and done what they've done you hear this all the time. I heard this last night on the news here in Chicago, right? They're preparing for the NFL draft. Ryan Pace is the general manager of the Chicago Bears. He's talking about drafting the best possible players for the best position. So, but what I think Bill Belichick and his management staff and his coaching staff has always done better than everybody else. And year after year, the standings, the Super Bowl championships and everything, they prove it, that they're always hiring the best person for the position. And they have done that year in, year out. Why is it that teams like the Bears or teams like the Jacksonville Jaguars, which I think was the team that I identified with you last week, why is it that they're always near the bottom? You know, the coaches are not making the same difference as the people up in uh, with the New England Patriots are. So it, it's it's just very simple that I think you draft for the best possible position. Yeah. And, you know, in my position, this, this is where, you know, I've, I've held leadership positions in the restaurant industry for the better part of my career. I'm very, very lucky. I became president of the Levy Restaurants when I was, you know, in my early 30s. Wow. I was running a $100 million-plus company in, in my early 30s. I'm far from the most talented or smartest individual. But what I am really smart at is that I know that if I surround myself with specialists that are smarter than I am in their specific roles, 
I'm going to be successful. Yeah. I yeah. love it. And, uh, man, there's so much great stuff here. And it, 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 the, it's kind of funny. I'm listening to the 21 irrefutable laws, uh, to leadership right now by John C. Maxwell. Mm-hmm. And he uses the example that in the quote, I can't know. I can't remember who he's quoting, but it's like along the lines of, um, you know, there's no doubting that you need incredible talented players on your team to be successful, but you can have incredibly talented players on your team and horrible coaching and still be the worst team in the league. But if you have incredible coaching and semi great players, you can still have a shot at being like that, like number one team. Um, So you, you put a lot of emphasis and I agree with you 100% that if you surround yourself with people who are in the right position or hiring the right people for the right position that will absolutely contribute to your success. But what's the impact of the coach now? What's the impact of, aside from selecting the person and putting them in that position, what else did you learn in your time at Levy about the coach's role or the management, the leader's role? Well, I think leadership is, is one of these things. You hear the word used oftentimes, but being a great leader is multidimensional in and of itself. You've got to be a a human person. I believe myself to be very human, very approachable. Um, You know, in my role, I always operated by uh, Ken Blanchard uh, very early on, way back in the 1980s. He was the author of The One Minute Manager. He had certain other principles where he talked about an inverted pyramid. And in the service business, I sincerely believe in the inverted pyramid. The inverted pyramid very simply takes a pyramid and turns it upside down and puts the people who are closest to the customer, the external customer, that is, okay? Those are the servers. Those are the busboys. Those are, those are potentially your hosts and hostesses. Those are the people that are really making the bread and butter every day because they're touching every customer. So in the role as president or chief executive or chief operating officer, as I have held, I'm the furthest away technically from those people. I always try to be very present, but I'm really – furthest away from those people. So I need to support the people that are literally up the ladder from me. Mm-hmm. And the people that are up the ladder from me are all the general managers or the regional directors of operations, senior executive chefs, the directors of marketing, all of the people that are my customers. So before you can ever really think about winning external customers, you have to, as a leader, win ex- internal customers. Mm-hmm. And who are my internal customers? The people that I just exactly. mentioned. And who are those people's internal customers, the servers, the hosts and hostesses, the ones that are the absolute closest? That, in my opinion, is the essence of leadership. Man. Leadership Man. Is, is being powerful to the people that are closest to the ones that are really going to make the bread and butter and the difference in your company. I love and that's, that. And that's winning customers one at a time. I love it, man. I really do. And um, you had mentioned something earlier that really kind of hit me hard not too long ago uh, about the, the role of the coaches to be human. Um, what does it mean to you to be human? I think to be very personal, very much in touch, um, very supportive and knowledgeable about, uh, about people. Early on when we were a tiny little company at Levy and we were growing restaurants one by one, people would come into the company and, and, you know, there's, there's also a, a psychological, uh, paradigm that I think uh, um, some famous psychologist said that, you know, you can really kind of read a person within the first couple of minutes and learn a lot about what their innate characteristics and whatnot are. 
So I'll tell you about a couple. So, you know, there, there, was, there was one guy way back in the early days of the Levy restaurants who came aboard as a Hispanic dishwasher, didn't speak a word of English, but boy, did he have a high, a high work ethic. Just incredible. You could tell it the very first time. He was very passionate about what he did. He was only an 18, 19-year-old kid. This is somebody that I saw something in. His name is Julio Gonzalez, by the way. And, um, and I saw something in. And as a really good leader and as his general manager, he was a dishwasher for us, put him through English-speaking classes. Company paid for that. He taught himself. He put himself through those classes, learned English and everything. And when Levy was given the opportunity to become the very first company ever to develop, own, and operate restaurants on Disney property down at Disney World in Florida, which was a massive distinction for our company, Julio Gonzalez went down there as a sous chef, an English-speaking master of the kitchen, 10 years after he was put through English classes, and 30 years after that date, he's the executive chef of the Levy Restaurants in Disney World. I did that for several people. And, um, and that's, how, that's what I mean about being human. That's seeing something in, in, in people. That's maybe an extraordinary example, but it's a good example. I mean, just to paraphrase, what is it to be human? You said to be knowledgeable about people. That, in essence, is emotional and social intelligence, understanding people and seeing the potential in people. And then after that, to just care. Guys, our role as human beings, as homo sapien, is to take care of the next generation, to give them everything we know, all the knowledge we know, all the the caring we have so they can be successful after us. Our only existence in life is to take care of the next wave of people. You've got to do that. And that's exactly what I'm seeing with Levy Restaurant Group and you and seeing the potential in other people and then giving them the opportunity, enabling them, giving them the tools, the resources to be successful, the knowledge to be successful. And that's what you do with Julio. Uh, And that's what we need to do with our employees. We need to be looking for that next generation. We should care for all of them regardless of their specific talents and traits. But I love what you're sharing with us right now. I'm jacked up. I don't know if you can tell. This is great stuff. Uh, and man, um, this is beautiful. So we're still just talking about what you learned from the, the experience at Levy Restaurant Group, that 20-year experience. And uh, so would you say that your ability to climb the ranks like you did in that 10 years uh, to the time you were you know, in your early 30s was this ability to serve everyone uh, above? or I guess below you or in your way of putting it above you, uh, that servant leadership mentality and just caring for other people. was that kind of what you think did it for you to get you to where you are today? Yeah, I think it was, uh, one of the most important things. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm just a real, um, personal type of leader. And I had the opportunity, uh, the unique opportunity at Levy to be involved in that company, basically from the very first restaurant. So, you know, there were a lot of people who came down the road after me that came into roles of leadership and whatnot, but I had the unique opportunity um, and maybe the privilege, if you will, of being kind of first in line. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I used a lot of the things that I had learned back in my college days, both in in the classroom, theoretically, and also through some of the jobs that I had during my high school and college days that were, um, you know, in serving types of roles, different roles. But um, they really, they really formed a character in, in me, and and I also, uh, I don't know if we talked about this last week, Eric, but I had a unique opportunity when I was in college 
to really have um, a boss and a job that um, was not somebody that I really cared for. And, um, and I think that as an early young person, you tend to really learn more from bad experiences if you really look inside of them than you do from good experiences. And what I mean by that is that if you, you join somebody and he's a really great manager and you're young and you're starting to kind of create your own cultural type of personality, if you will, if you're joining something where the structure is great and everything is, is, is terrific, it might be really hard for you to, to isolate all of the things that really make it great. But when it's a bad experience and you have a boss who's a tyrant and who manages very, very differently and, and very authoritatively and doesn't teach you and doesn't, doesn't really look at you as, as the human being, as we spoke of several times, that really stood out in my mind. And, um, and, and made an imprint on me that that's not the way that I really want to be when I get into a position of leadership. So um, you can learn a lot from bad experiences, too, if you really are, are very interested. I just love that, that just example of taking every moment of your life to take a lesson away from that. And there's always a silver lining. I think some people, more pessimistic people would be like, oh, I got a bad start. I had a horrible boss. It's not my, like, I didn't learn anything, but you did. Yeah. And you always got to look for that learning opportunity. I love yeah. that. So I'm curious, 20 years at Levy, um, you said probably the biggest lesson for you, it sounds like, was that just that servant leadership mentality and taking care of the next generation of people and uh, that job performance, getting that feedback. Any other real aha moments for you in this 20 years that uh, that you applied later on in life with uh, Restaurant Associates and now with your own restaurant group and consulting? Yeah, I think there were several. I mean, you know, the, the, the founding owner of the Levy restaurants, there were two brothers, uh, Mark Levy was the restaurateur of that company. He was a very endearing person. Um, he gave me a sense of independence and freedom and latitude to uh, to run things uh, the, more or less the way that, that I wanted to, always watching over things. But um, he was also very much an entrepreneur, um, a, a risk taker, if you will. We were always developing different concepts. So we weren't doing things cookie cutter. We were always developing concepts that were right or different from the market, mm-hmm. bringing a charcoal grilled fish concept to Chicago that had never been there before, bringing a barbecue type of concept over tablecloths that had never, ever been represented in the city of Chicago. And the list goes on and on into double digits, many of them. So over the years, he was the type of individual who, who always kind of gave that support from a distance. Um, he was just terrific. And then all of those restaurants that we developed, Eric, they created an opportunity back in the mid-1980s that we saw that very, very few others, if any, ever saw. And that was the development of, uh, of the sports concession business. New stadiums were being built all around the country with private membership stadium clubs, sky boxes, and waiter-waitress service in loge boxes that had never been tried before. And it needed an entirely different type of food service philosophy applied to that business. And we walked through an open door, a window of opportunity that nobody else was seeing. at the time. So we used our restaurant backgrounds and everything that we had experimented with and been very successful in that experimentation to apply to the sports concession business, giving people a restaurant style experience 
in a place where they least had come to expect it. And, and that created an incredibly uh, prolific growth thir- surge for the Levy restaurants during that period of time. So just huge emphasis there on the idea of thinking outside of the box, uh, not copying what everyone else is doing, but to, to do new creative, fresh things, new ideas, like you had mentioned with uh, having like, was it the coal fire grill uh, or the woodburn Char- charcoal, yeah, charcoal yeah. grilled fish restaurant, yeah. do things differently. Try to stand out, find a unique selling proposition and think outside the box. Uh, and for you, it was the whole idea of the, the, uh, sports concessions. Like that was a new thing. Like there's always opportunity wherever there's people, there's an opportunity to feed people and think creatively, uh, and, and find a niche and serve a market that's not being served, uh, is the big lesson I got from that. But the other huge lesson, I got, and we just kind of skimmed over it. You said your boss, Bill, uh, gave you a sense of independence and enabled you to grow personally into, uh, basically he fed into your higher needs of self-actualization and uh, personal growth by giving you that freedom, not restricting you. Is that safe to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to that? You know, he was, he was a, he was a great mentor, a business mentor. I've had the, the, the unique opportunity to have two great mentors, I think, in my business career. One was, uh, you know, just a great professor back at the University of Houston, who has been a mentor and a second father to me throughout my entire life. God bless him. He passed away at the end of last year, but he was he was an incredible impression on my life. And, um, and Mark Levy was too, because of everything that you just reiterated that I spoke of. Mm. Mark was the type of individual he was he wasn't hands-off, but he was hands-off enough to let you know that, that he believed in you and he believed in what your specific talents were to let you run with them. And then when we were developing a new concept or what have you, when it came to the, men- the menu development, when it came to the actual look of the product on the plate and everything, he'd participate in that, but he'd participate in that in a very participative manner, not in a ruling type of manner. And if he had a way of looking at it, let's look at this differently, Bill. Let's look at this differently, team. You know, he was a very embracing type of individual. That Wow. I'm loving this. And I guess that's a really great way to, to put it, a way I never heard uh, described before of just participating. Basically being there, offering your engagement, your feedback, but not taking control of the situation, giving uh, maybe this manager you're trying to develop the the goal, the objective to do a project, and then just being there to kind of to like you know be like the the banks of the river to gently guide them in the right direction without taking over the decision making process. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know at Levy, by the time that I left Levy during that 20 year period of time, Eric, I had developed and participated in the creation of more than 150 different, totally uniquely different concepts and businesses. Wow. So when we did a stadium, when we got to Cleveland and did Jacobs Field in Cleveland, yeah, it was another baseball stadium, just like Wrigley Field and, and the old Comiskey Park that was redeveloped in Chicago. But it was a totally uniquely different stadium with a totally uniquely different market and expectations. So those people in Cleveland, they had unique likes and dislikes. So it wasn't cookie cutter in at all. And it was uniquely developing things to that market. And then we wound up doing that entirely different 
stadium after stadium in all four major sports, thoroughbred horse racing tracks, zoos, and uh, and and car excuse me car racing tracks you know all around the country. And now Levy is doing that uh, on an international basis as well. There's so much I want to talk about right now, and I have to make decisions and choose to go in a certain direction. And it's really it's tough, Bill, because I know mm-hmm. no matter what we're going to talk about, you're just going to provide tons of great advice. Um, I do want to talk about uh, this idea of not being cookie cutter and having to you, you might have similar operations in this example, concessions at a sports arena, but you still have to tailor those operations to the demographic, to the community. So um, is there like a secret sauce to uh, taking something that works in one place, whether, whether it be a restaurant or a concession and taking that framework and putting it in a different community and having it be successful someplace else? Like what, what are you looking at to really adapt that business to the community? Well, I think there's a lot of market research that goes into that in advance. So you're looking at the restaurant community. You're looking at the independent restaurant community because that's where we came from, not the chain, chain restaurant community. So you're looking for the likes and dislikes of, of the, those, those, those regional tastes and, uh, and points of difference. Some of that might uh, get well outside of the realm of food. It might go to the uniform that people the people wear. It might go to the way that the the, the menus are structured. We were early on in the in the online um, invention of of menus and, and correspondence taking place online. Um, you know all of those things. I mean, I think that one of the other things that that is inherent in the way that we grew at Levy that was a benefactor. We were the benefactors of keeping people very loyal. It was all of the things that we've already spoken about, the feedback and everything. But think of it this way, too. Think of a multidimensional company that was always doing something different, always doing something different. So I'm not going to belittle anybody. I'll just pick names out of the hat, right? I'll take Chick-fil-A. Great. I'll take Popeye's Chicken. Great. No problem, right? But it's always the same thing. So if you're somebody that you're recruited out of a hotel and restaurant management program or coming out of the Culinary Institute of America, where would you like to be? So I'm going back in my career back to the 1980s, in the mid-1980s. Where would somebody like to be? So when I'm recruiting at Michigan State or Cornell or the University of Houston or Culinary Institute of America, and I'm talking to, to prospective managers to come in at entry level, I'm getting them real thirsty by talking to them about opening stadiums up around the country or opening up all kinds of different restaurants. Very different kind of profile than the guy who's sitting in the next room to me interviewing for Popeyes or Chick-fil-A. And, um, and that also was a big contributor towards the loyalty of our organization. Man, you're just lighting me up inside right now, Bill. I got to ask what you said, always doing something interesting, always doing something new and fresh. How does that feed into the emotional health of your employees? Does that question make sense? Oh my God. I mean, I think that if you're always doing something new and different and and you're built on entrepreneurial foundation, as opposed to corporate foundation, that is Corporate foundation is very cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that, right? Whoa. Massively successful companies are out there that do the same thing over and over again. It's all about replication. Replication is very hard. Entrepreneurism is very hard too. 
but there's a lot more latitude when you're doing entrepreneurism. And the world or the landscape is very simply, let's just say that Mark Levy anoints me to say, Bill, let's do a barbecue restaurant in Chicago, but let's do it real different. What does real different mean? All of a sudden, you know, the real creative juices and the instincts kind of flow. It's yes. not just mine. It's everybody yes. that's going to be a part of that team, right? Oh, yes. my God. Let's do, <laughs> let's do barbecue on a tablecloth. Nobody ever did that in Chicago. You know, let's do barbecue. Let's, let, let's not smoke like everybody else smokes over white oak or hickory or something. We're going to use a combination of orange and applewood. Oh, my gosh. All of a sudden, you know, your taste buds start to flow, and everything else kind of gets a little bit different in, in, in a lot of those foundational elements. I call them concept clarity. And, uh, and the concept clarity statement is really the foundation of what a, a, a restaurant or a business is all founded upon. I mean, we are human beings. We, we need to grow. We need to learn new things. We need to express our creativity. And when you're put into a cookie cutter operation, you can't really fully achieve that self-actualization of, of creating something that's unique to you, that's special to you. And when you do what Bill is explaining, where you try to create new different things all the time you need to get those ideas from someplace and where better to get them from the people that have been serving your restaurant your team a part of your family give them those vertical opportunities to grow emotionally and professionally and that's why i love this business model because it's what's best for everybody not just those at top um and I think that's probably a conversation for another day, but I love what you're giving us. And one other thing you said earlier, and I kind of want to bring it back now. We were talking earlier about the whole idea of um, our job as servant leaders is to constantly be serving those immediately next to us. So if we're the owner, we're serving the general managers, the, the, the executive chef or whatever, or if you are a partner, chef, partner, owner, you're serving the managers above you. I think... I get kind of frustrated with people who want to open restaurants and have nothing to do with them afterwards. They just see that as an asset. Um, and I feel like that's kind of where this whole service, like it, it crumbles at the very top and they just, you know, build it, get it going and then walk away from it. How does that destroy your business? Well, I think as a leader, as a visionary and as somebody that really has the original business purpose in mind, um, when you walk away from it, you, you kind of lose a lot of the fabric that, that kind of holds the whole ball together. Mm. And, um, you know, the restaurant business has the highest failure rate of any business in the free world. I'm going to stop you real quick. You, yeah. Because I before we get too far ahead, you said you lose the ball, you lose the fabric that holds it all together. What is the fabric that holds it all together? Well, I think when you're when you're a um, an entrepreneur or an owner of a business, there's a vision that comes from you. I mean, the funds, the investors, whoever that's coming from, the passion for all of that really emanates right from the founder of the business. Yes, you know, and and that person needs to communicate that, and certainly with really good managers. And the ebb and flow of a business that is, as it navigates itself down the trail, hopefully, of success, you know, there's going to be change in a lot of that vision and everything. But as a, as a really good founder, as a really good owner, as a really good executive, you need to 
open your mind up to be adaptive to that. I'm very lucky, you know, that I've learned from a man like Mark Levy. I adapted some of those principles for a half dozen years at Restaurant Associates. I'm doing that in my restaurant company now. My, I'm, I'm speaking to you out of my office in Chicago, but I have restaurants that are in Alabama and in Maryland. I'm not there every day. I can't walk into those businesses every day. I visit them once a month, but I have people in those businesses that I have extraordinary confidence in, in their abilities to carry a lot of the original founding principles, the dots, if you will, for my constant clarity that connected a lot of that to open the business. But there's, there's disconnections that occur over time, and then you got to adapt to it. So I have people that I rely upon to bring a lot of those new and different ideas to, to foster the, 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 the ongoing success and, um, and hopefully, you know, the, the tenure of those businesses yeah. so they can become part of the, of the graveyard. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think my favorite saying is uh, behind every great restaurant is a great person. And you, you will never be the owner of a great restaurant until you yourself are a great person and try to make everyone around you great as well. You have to be somebody who lifts everyone else up and surround yourself with people who are going to lift you up. Um, and that's what I'm hearing from you and you can't set it and forget it in this industry. You got to have that constant gentle pressure. Like Danny Meyer says, um, or just won't like you are the ball. You are the fabric that holds it all together. If you leave, if you don't care, no one else will care. Um, awesome stuff, man. So when we first started talking a week ago, Bill says, Eric, is this really going to be an hour to an hour and 20 minutes long? Uh, he says, that seems like a really long time. <laughs> We're already like almost at 50 minutes. So it goes by fast. I said, Bill, just mm-hmm. wait. It's going to go by fast. Um, I'm going to let you pick the next thing. I mean, we, we haven't even got to like 90, 90, 1998 yet where you're with the restaurant associates or is there anything that you want to talk about later in your, that, you know, lessons you learned later in your life that you've applied to these different concepts uh, of the fast casual uh, restaurant on um, the Mediterranean restaurant, or just being a consultant or uh, what you got going on with WJP restaurant group. Like you pick the next area of, of, of conversation. I, I want to see what, where this goes. Well, why don't we talk what maybe a little bit about the future? Yeah. And um and what the future, you know, might uh, might hold at least from from my eyes and my vision. Okay. So, yeah, I've been in the business for 40 years. Um, you know, I'm a man of 60 years of age. Um, I love the restaurant business. It's all I've ever known. Mm-hmm. It's all I ever will know. And um and it's the only business or industry that I'm ever going to work in. So, having worked in an industry for that period of time with everything that we've just discussed, right? Multidimensional restaurants. I've done just about every kind of ethnic cuisine that has been done out there Mm. on an independent restaurant tours basis. I've done stadiums on a huge, large scale. I've done small businesses too. And I happen to think that the fast casual segment of our industry is the real lifeblood and the fastest running stream in the business, probably for the next generation or two. And why do I think that? I think that because the fast casual business elevates a little bit of the food experience from the fast food experience. So the fast casual restaurants, they reside in a space that's in between the McDonald's and the Taco Bells and the Chick-fil-A's on the fast food side. And the table service guys up top of them might be Chili's and Applebee's on the chain side, Outback, 
and you know they're all they're all very good they all offer great things but on the bottom side or on the lower end the fast food guys are condemned for a lot of you know the health problems in america right we're, we're among the fattest countries on, on the planet and they're constantly attacked in that regard and in many instances rightfully so and then the people that are above them the applebee's and the chilies and the outbacks and everything they don't necessarily provide the speed that maybe a lot of people are looking for so these fast casual guys my concept my co-founding concept of routine mediterranean grill and the Chipotle's and the Panera's and, and those people of the world, they're in that space that resides in between. And the in-between is, is provided by, they don't have table service, so there's a speed factor there. People can get through it faster. And there's a quality factor there. It's a step above maybe what you're getting with the fast food guys. And you're getting the ethnic variety, which I think is really key too. The spice, the variety, the menu, um, the value is provided there. You don't have to tip a server. Um, so you're, you're in a, you, you reside from a check average standpoint that's in between fast food and, and the table service guys. And I happen to think that that is a sector. And I've devoted, you know, my own company's evolution here, which has been two years in the making now, to really um, the fast casual side of things. I happen to think that it's going to be there for, for quite a while. I agree with you absolutely. And uh, one, so you mentioned a bunch of the benefits to the consumer that it's it's healthier, it's quicker. So you're getting the best of both worlds uh, from the quick service and the casual dining. But there's also a lot of benefits for the operator. Um, mm-hmm. What are those benefits? Well, I think that you know uh, there are some unique benefits when you operate, and and I've experienced both sides of this coin on the fast casual side. I've, I've experienced the benefits of operating center city and urban where a fast casual concept can open up in the dense density of downtown markets like Chicago, like DC, like Manhattan, like they're going to be going to, to, to downtown Dallas and, and other cities where you can operate a business and operate a business on a five day a week schedule. When you go suburban, you go to uh, the opportunity of opening up, a larger company because the suburbs occupy more population on a national scale than than the downtown urban do. But you also open yourself up to having to operate a business seven days a week, lunch and dinner. And all of a sudden your economic model changes, changes dramatically as opposed to operating a five day a week business. It's not just that you can capitalize on generating the dollar volumes and the sales in the five days or five lunches per week but you have a staff that becomes incredibly loyal to you. Mm-hmm. Our downtown Roti businesses, when we first opened Roti in Chicago, operated on staffs where we, ha- where we barely ever turned over an employee. And why is that? We were good bosses. We were really good people. It's all of that personal stuff that we were talking about earlier. But on their side of the equation, in addition to that, being respected and being, you know, um, uh, being in, in, in a place that was enjoyed to work, you also were an employee that was almost guaranteed of getting your same 35 or 40 hours every yeah. week. So there, it, 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 it worked in, in, on both sides. So there's benefits in, in that regard. Um, you know, there's benefits of, of being a little bit more healthy than your fast food uh, guys. You can, you can play uh, the, the local vor um, going, you know, with local suppliers and everything in that regard. You can be a little bit more nimble too. 
in in if you're if you're an entrepreneur if you're not if you're not a big huge chipotle you can you can do limited time offerings you can generate you know we're going to Cinco de Mayo 5th of May happens next Friday right it's a week from tomorrow um, we're celebrating Cinco de Mayo as a week in our Mexican restaurants both in Chicago and, and down in Alabama and in Washington DC so we, we, you can be a little bit more nimble I think in in that, in that regard too I just love the sector. You know, cell phones and computers have, have changed our lives dramatically. I have the unique benefit, Eric, of, of having lived a life when, you know, we didn't have cell phones, didn't have computers. You weren't on 24 hours a day all the time. Um, those things have changed our lives. Yeah. And those yeah. things feed into the fast casual business, and I think they feed into it well. Absolutely. So I, I love that point you made about uh, having a more consecutive or more consistent hours so you can have more loyalty with your staff because they're going to have a, a consistent, steady work schedule, plenty of hours. The other things I've heard of, and I'm curious if you've caught this too, as far as why there's benefits to a fast casual operation. You can get by with fewer staff. You don't need as many people uh, to operate a fast casual concept. And it's much less complicated in the sense of creating the systems, processes, procedures, uh, because it's almost, it's, it's very like uh what's the word? Like assembly line orientated where you can just train one person to do one thing and then, get them going, get them up. And then over time, grow them as, as a, an employee. But as far as the systems processes, procedures go, as far as the keeping your prime costs down, go, I think there's a lot of other benefits there too. Do you want to speak to any of those? Yeah, I think that that's all very true. What you just said. I think there's a very, very fine line, a fine balance that you need to seek as a fast, casual operator. And what I mean by that is that your menu can't be too simple that you don't provide enough opportunity for frequency, Mm -hmm. but you don't want to be too complicated so that your inventory is too large or that the kitchen has to produce too many products. Mm -hmm. So there is a fine balance. Roti was created as an example with three different menu segments, if you will, sandwiches, salads, and plates or platters. It gave the opportunity for that young professional, and that's the targeted group when you're really going urban, you're getting those people that are 25 to 45 years of age that are your core market, that are willing to explore and experiment with different ethnic backgrounds or ethnic cuisines and whatnot. And if you really turn them on with one, be it a sandwich, a salad, or a plate or a platter, chances are you're going to be able to get them back for a second or maybe even a third visit on a weekly basis. When you can hit that kind of a metric, you know that you've got something that that is really, really strong. The other fine balance that you have to speak to, and you mentioned it, the assembly line, you've got to be able to, if you're going to be a a five-day-a-week urban concept, you've got to be able to hit a metric that is generating somewhere between 250 or 300 people served per hour because your your lunch hour is really only about 150 minutes long. Mm-hmm. It might even be a little bit shorter than that. 150 minutes is two and a half hours. You've got to be able to generate 600 or 700 customers and serve them, make those, make those people feel like they're not going through a cattle call. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a very fine balance in the menu that you represent and in the service, um, uh, service personality, if you will, that, that people get when they're going, going down the line. 
Awesome. Great points. And uh, we got to get a failure from you. A time, Bill, where you just fell hard on your backside uh, with a failure. Uh, what happened? Yeah. Well, you know, at Levy, we were very, very fortunate in the first, uh, let's, let's take a 10 or a dozen restaurants that we opened, that they were all opened up at a period of time back in those early to mid-1980s. Every one of them hit, and every one of them hit, hit well. But then all of a sudden, you know, we opened up a couple of different concepts. It might be the location. We opened up Subterranean in a, uh, in a Chicago mall. Now, in New York, there's a multitude of restaurants we all know that exist below ground, but they don't exist well um, or survive well in other cities. So that was a, loca- that was a bad location choice. We, we experimented in Chicago. Chicago is kind of a meat and potatoes town, real Midwestern town. We took a concept that Puck had done um, out in, in Los Angeles that was extraordinarily successful and tried to apply that very same thing to Chicago. I think from a culinary standpoint, it was one of the best explorations that we ever did. We called the concept Eurasia, which was a combination of some European cooking influences and Asian cuisine. It was, it was great, but Chicagoans just didn't latch onto it. And, um, and you know, you, you've got to be honest with yourself. And when it doesn't hit, you don't want to keep putting good money after bad. Mm. So you, you, you pull a cord. Yeah. Um, so we, we had, we had our, our share of, uh, of failures. And, um, and, you know, I'm going through a struggle right now with some of my restaurants you know, down in, uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, we're just outside of the NASA base and we're on a piece of land. Huntsville, by the way, was or, uh, Huntsville. NASA was created back uh, just before World War II in 1938. So for the better part of the last 80 years, people have been conditioned as Huntsville natives or people that have been, you know, uh, assimilated there, they become conditioned to turning off the interstate there and going to the NASA base, well, that's only for NASA people. Or U.S. Army Central Command is also located. It's basically a military base. We've got to change that whole culture around so that people become conditioned to know that it's not just NASA, it's not just U.S. Army Central Command, but there happen to be some really good restaurant alternatives. (laughs) You don't need a badge to go through a security gate to to get to them. So So, there's some challenges. What's the biggest lesson that we can take from what you share with us? For the entire conversation today? No, just from those failures. Oh. Uh, is it just to pull the plug? Don't get, don't throw good money after bad? Is that the, the big overarching lesson? Yeah, I think so. I think the other thing that, that you know, is, is certainly not uh, unique to myself. You've heard this old adage time and time and time again. What's the most important thing about, uh, uh, about a restaurant becoming successful? And what are the top three things? Location, location. Location, yeah. location, location. It's really important. You know, I just expressed to you a challenge with a location down in Huntsville. Yeah. Being, you know, located in a, in a difficult challenge. I believe in it. I believe in it long term. We believe that in Chicago, we could change people's perceptions about going to a restaurant downstairs next to an entry to a movie theater, that the, it would be logical for them to go to a restaurant as well. Didn't prove to be right. Mm. Um, you know, so, so location is extraordinarily important. I think you've also got to be very creative too. You've got to have, you got to have unique nuances, um, you know, and, and then inside of that, there's a lot of lessons there too, Eric. I mean, awesome. 
you know, you and I talked last week about menus. Right? Yeah, <laughs> which could be a whole other episode. I don't. It know would be a whole that. other episode. I mean, right. you're always welcome back. I'll, I will say that. If, uh, <laughs> I'll always make time for you, Bill. Uh, but okay. we got to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. After studying over 300 successful restaurant professionals, I've discovered that to be successful in the restaurant industry, you need skills that go far beyond knowing how to cook. All of our guest mentors are damn near experts on business operations, systems, and culture. That is not a coincidence. That is what it takes to be successful. This is exactly why I tell everyone I know who wants to open a restaurant or is in the restaurant business to get a membership to restaurantowner.com. For only $29 a month, you have access to over 300 templates, including business plans, checklists, forms, manuals, and procedures. In addition, you have countless resources at your fingertips. To join a community that has helped over 40,000 restaurant owners make better lives for themselves, head over to restaurantowner.com slash unstoppable and because you are restaurants unstoppable listeners you will get the first 10 days for only one dollar again that's restaurantsowner.com slash unstoppable whether you're just getting started in the restaurant business or if you're a seasoned veteran there's always something new to learn that never ends But what hasn't changed is the time you get to learn. Tipsy has taken everything you need to know and put it in one easy-to-access location. With Tipsy, you can learn what you want, when you want, by accessing an incredible library of video courses on topics like food and beverage, service, marketing, and business operations. It's basically a one-stop shop for everything you need to run a successful restaurant. You can also use Tipsy as a staff training tool. Through the management platform, you can select the courses that matter to you and schedule them out to your employees in a few simple clicks. Individual memberships are only $9 a month, and as a restaurant unstoppable listener, you receive an extra 50% off your first month. So what are you waiting for? For $4.50, you can have access to this incredible resource right now. Just find the tipsy banner in the show notes. We're back. The first question I have for you, Bill, is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Being human, we've talked about that. I think that being personal with people and um, being approachable and um, and just being human with people is uh, is the most important thing. I think I'm most proud about in my entire career. Yeah, I've, I've worked at Levy and opened up 150 different concepts. I've opened up 200 different ones now throughout my entire career. Um, yeah, that's a great mark on the resume, and, and people think, wow, that, that's, that's, that's unique, that's impressive. The thing I'm, I'm, I'm most proud of in my entire career are the people that I have led that have gone on to their own levels of success in different companies, whether they're owning their own restaurant, owning their own business. Um, the things that I was, the, the nuggets that I was able to give to them and that they then carried forward in their career, making themselves even better. That's what it's all about. I love it. I really do. And what is your biggest weakness? Sometimes I think, you know, when, when you're, when you're as human, maybe as I am, 
you you open yourself up to uh, the fine line between naivety and trust. And um, and I've I found myself um, in my career being maybe a little bit too naive. Um, uh, you know, I can be I can be talked to by real estate brokers or landlords, and and uh, um, and maybe even to the point of uh, of maybe being a little gullible, believing some things in, in people because I take people more or less at face value. Yeah, I get that. I mean, there's a lot of pros to cons to being trusting in others. Uh, there are sharks out there. You can get taken sometimes, but I I personally believe that there are more good experiences that come from being good, open, trusting, um, than bad. Uh, I do too. so don't let that stop you from being good because it will, pay. It, has, it hasn't <laughs> stopped me yet. Yeah. And I don't think it's going to stop me. Not now, you. I'm 60. talking to the listeners. Like, you know, like it, 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 you will come out on top. It, like, yes. I don't believe in that whole nice guys finish last thing. I really don't. Yes. But, yeah. um, what is one piece of advice you have for leading others? For, I'm sorry, for leading others? Yes, being a leader, leading others. Well, you know, I go back to that, uh, that motto, if you will, that the coach makes the difference. And, um, and I think as, you know, your responsibilities of being a good coach are, are being a leader to uh, a multitude of different individuals. You know, a right tackle on a football team has to be talked to about what he's doing right or wrong uh, differently than the quarterback or differently than the, than the split end or the defensive end. And it's the very same thing in the restaurant business. Um, you have to talk to your managers differently than you're talking to your servers or your cooks or your, or your bussers. So um, I, I think that being the, being the right kind of coach, being a leader is, is being able to adapt yourself to all of the different people that, that you're being asked to be a leader of. Awesome. What's one question you ask or thing you look for during an interview? Oh, I think, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that the thing that I look for in people is not so much the experience that they've had, but in the character that they exude and the way that they answer questions, the honesty that, that comes forth in, in the way that they respond to a question um, tells me, I think, a, a lot about a person. The eye contact that a person has with you, um, I think, tells a lot about that honesty factor as well. So um, I guess it's more trait-driven than asking any question or looking for any specific answer. Um, I have probably conducted, I don't know, 10,000 interviews in my time. Whenever I was asking uh, and interviewing, not so much a busboy or a dishwasher, but a server or a manager, I have always asked that person to respond to me back in the days before computers, they had to write the essay. Now in the days of computers, they can communicate digitally the essay. But what is the most important invention in the history of mankind? So there's no right or wrong answer to that. You got me thinking. About it. But what I get, what I get back, some of the some of the people that answer with the answers that are different than the obvious ones, the computer, the car, the wheel, the airplane, the telephone, the light bulb. 
those are the people that I take a very, very sincere and deep interest in because those are people that look outside the box and respond with something that is very unique and different. I was taught this principle by my mentor that I talked about, my college professor, and, um, and I have carried that forward as he did back in his career as well. And, um, and it's something that is very, very, uh, I think, tangible. And, uh, and it also teaches you, by the way, especially when you're looking for managers and whatnot, how they write, the depth of the thought, how they punctuate, and whether, you know, they're really, really serious about the job. Man, I'm curious. Have you ever had somebody answer to that question, the, the written word? I have had somebody uh, answer that. I have had um, people talk about Gutenberg, right, with the, uh, with the press. Um, and I have had some, some very, very strange answers. <laughs> I mean, really bizarre ones. Which shows creativity, um, which is a good huh? thing, I guess. <laughs> What's that? So creativity is a good thing, I guess. Yes, yes. Um, some, some that where the creative though goes a little bit too far, oh. <laughs> where you know that it's not not necessary. If I don't bring us back to the center line, we're gonna go way far off course. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> what is a current challenge you're dealing with right now? You know, I think there's a different um, uh, work ethic with uh, younger people. They've grown up in an entirely different world, but. Um, there are people there that, you know, it's all about the manager that you are and the leader that you are and the coach that you are that make people adapt to your situation. So I hear a lot of people say today, oh, people are not the same as they were, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I think people are all basically essentially the same. It once again all goes back to the coach making the difference and you can make people adapt. But it is a more challenging environment because I think people are growing up today in a world of, of different kinds of expectations than they were when I grew up. I agree with you 100%. But I also feel like the world that these young people are growing up in are a product of what came before them. So to take it out on them also doesn't really make much sense because we are a product of the the communities and the tribes we grow up in. So who's really at fault is the question. Should we, mm. should we as the leaders, the people who are responsible for bringing up this next wave of human beings, be responsible for what's out there now? Well, I think uh, if we look at one segment of our population and we know what politicians have created with pension liabilities and the contingent liabilities that we all as taxpayers pay for today, we know that there is a danger for the future generations that come beyond us, not to get into a political conversation, right? But we all we know that the handwriting is on the wall, that constitutionally that needs to be changed or else uh, the, the, the people that are being born today as my grandson are not going to grow up in, in the same kind of, uh, of world of opportunity that we grew up in. So what can we do about that? Oh, I think that, you know, I think that people today, uh, many people today are apt to uh, just outwardly complain as opposed to really getting involved. Yes. And, um, and people need to get involved. I mean, you, you know, you, you break it down, boil it down to our industry, Eric. You know, for years when I was on the board of directors of 
the culinary institute or the uh, Illinois Restaurant Association. I don't know. I was on the board of both. But was when I was on the board of the Illinois Restaurant Association, I actively lobbied. I took people that were part of our political action committee and took them to Washington and sat down in Congress people's offices, senators' offices, and petitioned for things that were important to our industry. You've got to get involved. The restaurant business is the easiest one, by the way, for the politicians to step on. Why? Because 98% of restaurants still today are owned by moms and pops. Mm -hmm. They're in their own restaurant every day just trying to scratch a penny or two together to make a profit. They don't have time to lobby. Mm -hmm. So they're the easiest cult. They're the easiest ones for the politicians to pick on. Yeah. So people got to get involved. Get involved. I love it. Besides food, what is one thing your restaurants do really well that separate you from other restaurants? Um, I think that uh, besides food, what do we do? You know, I think we're bonded very closely together. My restaurants now, the restaurants throughout all of my Levy and, and, and RA career, um, especially the first 10, 15 years of Levy, we were very, very bonded together as a team. People grew up from those teams into managers. We rarely ever lost anybody. So I think that that's real different. I think when you talk about a point of difference, you know, you hear these, these facts that come out from the National Restaurant Association that we suffer as an industry with more than 100% turnover. Um, we never suffered from turnover at all during the first 10 years of Levy. Basically, very, very low single digits for our lease. And management turnover, it was never, ever a concern of ours. So I'm so just going to say creating that long-lasting bond with your team members. Yeah, we were a family. We were a family. What's one technology you've adopted in your restaurants that's made either your communication better, your productivity better, your efficiency better, or just general profitability better? Oh, I think, I don't know if it's technology. It's basically, I guess, a a lesson. Um, I call it menu engineering. We got involved in this as an outgrowth from my my collegiate days and everything and learning from from a theoretical tool in the classroom and applying it and doing it once or twice annually in every business that I have ever been involved in. And that is taking the principle of a menu and what it is as the most important marketing tool that any restaurateur has, no matter whether you're corporate or an independent restaurateur, that menu, it can be fast food up on menu boards, or it can be a menu that you read in a restaurant, and how that is marketed to your customer can have a dramatic influence on your profitability. And as a restaurateur, you need to recognize that the obvious statement that you take dollars to the bank, not hamburgers to the bank, is something that many restaurateurs don't apply to the logic to the way that a menu is laid out. You can influence what your customers order. And if you want your customers to order the things that are most special in your business and that also contribute the most profitability to you, you have a way that you can do that. But this is a NRA proven fact. 90% of restaurateurs don't do that and they, as well as they could. So are you using a tool or a platform to uh, 
put this menu on? Are you using digital menus? Or are you still using paper? Like, can you give us any like resources you're using? Or maybe a place to go to learn more about menu engineering? Well, you know, a lot of the POS companies today that you use will give you a lot of the worksheets and the and the spreadsheets that will dictate what your menu mix is, what the profitability is on a per item basis. But then to take that to the next level is uh, is not something that is in the POS handbook or in any handbook that's out there. You know, this is this is something that you that you need to kind of have to learn a little bit and. Um, and you learn this, you know, through through people. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people that are experts that are out there that do this. Who's a person and, that, that that we can go to to learn more about that? Well, I mean, selfishly, you know, I can tell you that I know how to do this, and I've done this. And um, you know, there are other pieces of technology out there too that I apply when you ask that question. I mean, I know how to open a restaurant, Eric, with a database of thousands of customers, as opposed to building the restaurant and hoping and wishing for the customers to come, build that they will come. I've opened up all of my fast casual restaurants with a database of customers before the first day that we ever opened to the public. I like to open restaurants with a line. I like to open restaurants that have some kind of a cult following and, and, and have some kind of, of, of business already kind of almost bred into it. Mm. So, you know, there's technological ways to do that too. And, um, <laughs> And, you know, once again, you know, I guess I'm, I'm politicking here for myself, but, you know, I know how to do that. And uh, and that's another thing that is very unique that I don't think a lot of other restaurateurs know. Do you have any blog posts at your website that I can link to in the show notes to teach us about menu engineering or um, or about using data uh, to create that, what she's called, uh, what was it? Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. The, 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 the database, the, the, how to open a restaurant with, yeah. with a line? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I mean, I, I, I have that on my um, as a as a small little um, touch point on my consultancy website. But uh, now that you've given me the momentum to write a <laughs> blog or two about both of these topics, I'll have them up within a week or two. All right, when they're when they're up, you let me know, and I, I will, will uh, link to those in the show notes so people can learn I more. Will. And okay. uh, um, I'm curious, what POS are you using to get this data? Is, is there one that you think does a really good job of offering that information? Offering the information that leads to the point of, of getting to the decision-making. So, you know, every POS uh, will give you uh, a product mix or a menu mix, as I call it. Yep. Um, we currently use Toast. Okay. Um, Toast is a, is a POS um, manufacturer that's out of uh, – out of your region, yeah, not too Boston. far away from you. They're in Boston. That's right. That's right. Awesome. Great. I'll have that link in the show notes as well. This is episode 329. Just head over to the show notes. Soon, uh, there will be some blog posts on there. Maybe by the time this goes live, we'll see. And uh, what's one book that's a must read that will make us a better person or just restaurant operator in general? You know, there's a lot of books that are out there, I think, that teach you about uh, engineering better businesses and how to be a better manager and whatnot. You know, I've, I've always kind of migrated back to a motto that uh, comes out of the mentor that I've mentioned now a couple of times, my, uh, my collegiate coach and everything like that. He always abided by a principle, and he was a successful restaurateur before he became a college educator. He always abided by a principle and a motto that yes is the answer, what is the question? I love it. And I, I've always followed that philosophy in life um, as also being a restaurateur. And, uh, 
And I think that that is an overriding kind of guiding light in my career, and maybe even more more important as an answer to your question than any kind of given one single book. <laughs> yeah. Just, so is the message just, yes, read all books, just dive in? Oh, I don't, you know, there's uh, certain books I, I think are, are more important. I mean, I go back to the to the days of uh, In Search of Excellence and One Minute Manager. I mean, these are all principles that were back in the, in the pre-technological days. But, you know, there's a lot to learn from, from the days of pre-technology and whatnot. I still do arithmetic longhand, by the way, so that I never, so that I never lose myself to the automation aspects of people coming out of school today. They, 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 they expect to hit buttons as opposed to knowing the arithmetic. So yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the one minute manager manager has been mentioned a handful of times. Great book. Sure. I read it myself uh, and I have not stumbled across search for excellence. So I can't wait to check that one out. It's, it, it's in search of excellence. Um, Got you. And I'll, I'll put the name of the author back to you. When I'll, I, find uh, when I find <laughs> I'll find it and I'll put it in the show notes. Just remember, this is episode 329. And Bill, if you could go back in time and just give yourself one piece of business advice, maybe way back to 1978, what would that piece of business advice be? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I mean... My advice is to, uh, to always follow your own self and follow your own dreams. Hopefully, you're being led, around, led down the path with good managers, good coaches that, that make your own cultural personality, your own business personality your own. But if you can get yourself involved in businesses where you're being led by good people, I think that uh, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be better off for that in the long run. I love it. I really do. And if there was one question I could have asked you, Bill, that would have just provided more value to this conversation, what would that have questioned been? Or maybe a topic that we didn't get to discuss. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, these, the, this is a session that is much like um, an organization that I was involved in called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. I don't know if you've, ever, you've probably come across that in your 328 episodes, but this, the, these were companies that, uh, or this was a, an organization that was international, thousands of members still in existence today. You could become a member of it if you led a company that had uh, 5,000 employees and had uh, $10 million in sales, and you were the president of it, and you were under 40 years of age. So uh, those were, those, that was an enormous learning experience for me with people who were um, smarter than I was, leaders of, of organizations, not just restaurants, by the way, um, all businesses all around the world. And we'd always end a session with, um, you know, one word. You'd go around the room. And we were in chapter forums. So I was in a chapter of Chicago. It was a forum of other YPO members. And my forum had, had 20 people. And, um, and you know, I, we'd always end the session one word, what did you get out of this? Because we bring in guest speakers or people that, that would really lend knowledge to the universe of, of business. And, um, and I, my word always, just about every one of those chapter forum sessions, whenever we had, had somebody, was the word challenge or challenging. And I always found that word to be representative of, of, of something that I had learned in that session because it had challenged me. It was challenging to my business persona 
and made me reflect on um, how I could maybe adapt that principle to myself. So I, it, it, it isn't so much a question as much as it is as it is a word that I look for things. You know, when I listen to the, to your Hour Plus with Carrie Luxem, I learn things mm-hmm. because I think that you challenged her and she responded with certain responses that made me think, am I doing it that way? So it, it, it isn't as much of a question as it is, um, you know, a challenge, I think, to people as they go through any one of your 328 episodes, any business book that they read, anything that they might watch online, or anything that they do in their life when they're, when they're in, in an opportunity to learn something. How is it challenging them? Yeah, man, I love it. And I mean, kind of just to end on like a really positive thought. And you had mentioned your ability to, to join this group. Was it YPO? Yeah, Young President's Organization. Okay, I've never heard of it actually, but yeah. there's so much hope for the future. And we talked earlier about the challenge with the work ethic of young people, but it's not necessarily their fault because of the world they came up in of just trans transactional relationships. Um, we all have access or the ability to surround yourself with, with incredible people like you had through this, this membership that you were a part of through resources like this podcast and other podcasts. So there is a ton of potential to get access to this free influence to share knowledge because of, because of technology. So yeah, it's kind of like a double edged sword, <laughs> but there's a ton of hope. I like to think just being able to get access to, to minds like your own bill, um, that there is a, a, a really just a ton of hope out there to make a, a pivot for the better into the future for everybody. So uh, just a good way to kind of end things. So um, I, I like to wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator you admire somebody you just think is a, a great person we could all learn from, like how I found you call them out now. Well, you mentioned his name earlier in the, uh, in the broadcast and that's Danny Meyer. I mean, Danny Meyer is an author of, of restaurant books you know, I got to New York in 1999 when Danny was a relatively uh, younger restaurateur. It's almost 20 years ago now. Union Square Cafe was, you know, in the, in what, in my opinion, is the greatest city on the planet, New York, with the greatest number of restaurants. The city never sleeps. And here's a man who came Midwest ethic, you know, just with a with a passion and a desire to be the best in his industry and setting himself apart because of his service ethic. And Union Square Cafe, year after year after year, in the hotbed of the best restaurants on the planet, is always voted as the best restaurant in New York City. Awesome. How can, how can you be much, much more impressive than that? Danny Meyer, he's on my dream list of future guests. Uh, he's got an open invitation. Always welcome. Busy guy. Very busy guy. So uh, I'm here for you, Danny. If this, this, if this episode somehow makes it around to you, open invitation. Thanks for calling him out. And uh, let the folks at home know, Bill, how can we connect with you? If we want to dive further into your knowledge, maybe uh, hire you to come work for us or with us, uh, or maybe join one of your teams. Um, what's the best way to connect? Well, the two companies that you mentioned when you gave uh, the the quick uh, preamble um, of my introduction, Eric, you know, I have an operating company. It's the WJP Restaurant Group, wjprestaurantgroup.com. And then I also have my consulting company, which is wjpostrestaurantadvisors.com. Either one of them can get to me and uh, um, and I welcome anybody to uh, 
to follow this up with that. One last time, this is episode 329. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 329. I'll have the links to connect with Bill as well as a summary of today's discussion, a link to any product booked that was mentioned on the show, all right there. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come join us to make us all just a little bit better with your advice and mentorship. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the opportunity. (laughs) My pleasure. Cheers. Yes, that was an incredible episode here at Restaurants Unstoppable that just keep coming. I get these incredible guests. Man, uh, I don't know about you all out there listening to this, but I personally feel like with every one of these just influencers, where myself personally, I'm growing with every interview and I hope you are too. Uh, I love just being influenced by these incredible people. And I think Bill made it pretty clear that uh, he contributes his extremely successful career around this whole idea of giving loyalty and allegiance to both his inner and external guests. But it seems like primarily it's towards that inner guest, his team, his employees. Uh, and just for fun, this word allegiance, I've never really had that word used on the show yet to describe a way you should be uh, treating or acting towards your employees. And that word allegiance defined is loyalty or commitment of a subordinate to a superior or of an individual to a group or cause. I mean, just that mentality of knowing that you aren't anything, you are a subordinate to everyone else and knowing that you can't do it without those you surround yourself with. And that just humility just says so much about Bill and uh, commitment, loyalty, just to to feed into that greater cause or group. And to me, uh, I think it's clear that that service or that commitment is to the next generation of professionals, uh, the, the next generation of human beings. Like we are here on this planet to survive, not just ourselves, but as a group, as a whole. And we owe it to the next generation to serve them. And he mentions the best way to serve them is that constant feedback, uh, being committed, being invested in them and their growth as professionals and as people and always just holding him to that never ending growth. Uh, I think is the big lesson to take away from today's conversation. Uh, beautiful stuff. And man, Bill, like I said, you are always welcome back on the show. I would love to do a conversation just around, uh, menu engineering. Maybe we can do that. Um, shoot me an email. Let me know what you want to have bill on the show again to talk about. Uh, I'm open to this kind of stuff, guys. This isn't just the Eric Cacciatore show. This is restaurant unstoppable. This is about all of us. Uh, so use me to, uh, use my network to learn, to grow so we can all grow together and reach out to me on social media, Eric Cacciatore on Instagram and Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook slash restaurant unstoppable and email Eric at restaurant And the best way, like always to connect with me is during those one-on-one free chats. Tell me what you're struggling with. Tell me who you want to connect with. 
ask me all of your questions. I'm sure I don't have all the answers, but I know someone who does. And then, guys, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes coming. We're up to 89 total reviews, um, and I'm just so grateful for those reviews. And they really do just help validate what we're trying to do here at Restaurant Stoppable. And before I let you go, I need to let you know that I'm going to be hosting my first ever live episode this week, May 10th. That's a Wednesday, two days away from today. We're going to be talking to Chef Gaudette at the Free Point Hotel in Boston. And uh, he was the previous chef proprietor of Westbridge Restaurant. Now he is the proprietor and chef of Super Fine Foods. Uh, at the Manchester by the Sea Hotel, and he's also—I think he's got a couple more locations. I'm not sure where they are. He's also the executive chef at the Free Point Hotel, um, so he's got a lot of cool things going on. We're going to talk about why he just, he chose to close his full-service casual dining farm-to-table restaurant to open a farm-to-table uh, fast casual restaurant. How that's impacted his life, and uh, really just kind of you know pull back the layers of his mind to figure out why he made these decisions and if his life is better now or worse because of it. So I'm pumped. I can't wait. I think it's going to be a very educational conversation. And Jenny Johnson of uh, Nesson will be interviewing me afterwards. She'll be moderating the conversation and then she'll interview me. So you guys will get to meet me kind of, I don't know, where the conversation is going to go with Jenny. Maybe she'll pull back some of the layers in my mind and uh, kind of get after why I'm doing what I do. So uh, come meet me. 6.30 this Wednesday, Boston. I'll be there all night. Want to have a drink with you. So shoot me an email, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. If you want details, I'll be happy to help you. I guess that's it. Um, Oh, and then I'll be in Chicago next week. So if you're in the Chicago area, I'll be hooking up with my friends at bootabletv.com. Net, I believe. Uh, anyway, Football TV, just look it up. They're awesome. And uh, they're going to be hosting their second annual Foodable.io conference in Chicago. Uh, and then I'll be hanging around Chicago uh, for a few days after that. I would love to meet you. Um, so, again, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Reach out to me. Let's connect. I want to meet you if you're in those two cities. That's all I have. Thank you for sticking around this long. And until next time, peace out.